The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. All right, let's roll on this second to the last class, and we're going to try to at least start with some pace here. I want to spend some time on this issue of the harlot as we get introduced to her tonight and what that means for us as Christians in America and for our own Christian lives. Last week we made it up through 14. We didn't quite make it up through 14, but I just made it go through 14. We ended with the vision, the end of a vision, and that end of the vision was the final judgment, these two harvests, the harvest of grapes and wheat. The wheat, the gathering in of the church, the grapes, the gathering in of those who are going unto final judgment. Now today, chapter 15, though we're not going to uh, deal with 15, but I want to just mention it. We're not going to look into it. But chapter 15 begins a new vision now. Chapters 15 and 16 are a new vision, the vision of the bowls. A new series of seven judgments as we've been looking at the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls. But this vision begins with chapter 15. And chapter 15, I'll just throw it out to you and you can look at it later if you want, is like a, um, is a preparatory vision. I guess, uh, let's see if I have, chapter 15 and 16. Um, chapter 15 is a preparatory vision. It just gives you a vision of where this thing is going. And in the vision, what you see are saints standing on the sea. We've, we've been in this long enough to know now what the sea represents. The sea represents the chaos of, that rages against God's people. But in this vision in chapter 15, as we now move toward the end, we get a vision of the people of God standing on the sea, that which opposed them. Now, some translations say next to the sea, but I'm going with on the sea, and it can go either way, and I'm not going to make the case right now. But they're standing on the sea, and they're singing. And we've seen the people of God singing. And so they're standing on the sea and they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So right from the beginning, we get this Exodus theme that we're going to pick up on here as we go into these last judgments now of the bowls. And that should be, a, that should be like, I, I compare it to the box top on the model. When I was a kid, my, my dad would get me models to build. I was never good at them. Uh, but I always wanted to be, you know. And so I'd get this model and, and, and he'd, he'd, he'd trust me to get me the glue models, you know, of a P-51 Mustang when I was a kid, you know. And, and I look at that picture on the box and it was beautiful and it was painted just right and it had the stickers just right. And then I'd get to work and it would look terrible. And as I was going and glue was oozing out and just things weren't right, you look back to the box top and the box top gives you a vision of what it should be. In our vision... The box top doesn't just tell us the way it should be, it tells us the way it will be. And so when we look at our model and glue is dripping out and and the pieces aren't right and our stickers are on crooked, we look at the box top of chapter 15 or other places through the book and it gives us the vision of the way things will be. And it's an awesome vision there, even though we may be suffering, though we may be going through great trouble, persecution. There we are in that vision on the box top, standing on the sea, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. 
And if in your moment it doesn't seem like that because glue is dripping out the side, you look at that box top for encouragement. So, so that's what chapter 15 is. But again, we're just not, we don't have time to, to get into it. So let's jump into chapter 16. So we have that box top there for us. And in the same vision, we come to chapter 16, which is the vision of the bowls of wrath. The bowls of wrath. Now, what are these bowls? Well, they're bowls or they're cups. Right? So think about them either way. They're bowls or they're cups that are filled up with the wine of God's fury. We already heard this earlier that those, those who get drunk on the abominable adulteries of the harlot, they will drink the cup that is filled with the fury of God's wrath. We, we, we looked at that last week. Well, that, that cup filled with God's fury it, are these cups, these bowls, if you will. Bowls or cups filled with the wine of God's fury. This is taken, uh, at least in part, from Psalm 75, verse 8. This is what the psalmist sings. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming, uh, foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. In the hand of the Lord is a cup or a bowl and it's filled with foaming wine mixed with spices and they will drink it down. The wicked will drink it down to the dregs. So here, as we get into the, the seven bowls, we get these images now of the pouring out of God's wrath. Now they're not trumpets. They're not warnings now. Right? We're, we're coming to the end. No more warnings. They're not the breaking of the seals. These are now the fulfillment of God's wrath. And these, cu- these cups or bowls are filled, as we'll see, over time. Now let, me, let, me give you a, let me give you another passage here from Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And you know how Romans 1, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So by the time you get to Romans 1.18, you're starting to get this image of God's wrath. We'll come back to Romans 1 in a second. But then in Romans 2, he asks, he asks, he, he asks uh, his readers, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness? He's speaking to Christians now. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Remember, the trumpet blasts of horror, right? The, the natural disasters and towers falling and, and all kinds of horrible things, cancer and car accidents and all these things tell us something's not right with the world and they're intended to bring us to repentance, to get right with God. But he says this, but, be, but also is the kindness of God intended to lead you to repentance? It's not just bad things that are meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindnesses are meant to lead you. Every day you wake up and you take a breath of fresh air. You walk out and you feel the cool air on your face. You, you sit down for a meal. You experience God's kindness. And he's saying, don't, don't hold those in contempt. Don't you realize those were meant to bring you to repentance? And then he says, but because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when his righteous judgments shall be revealed. It's that storing up of wrath that fills the bowls, if you will, if we work on this analogy. So that nations are filling up the bowls of wrath. Rome is filling up the bowls of wrath. God is patient. We're told he's long-suffering. 
but his patience will not last forever. The time will come when the bowls are full, and when they are full, they will be poured out, and the wicked will drink them to the very dregs. If you remember in, in Exodus, when, in Exodus, 15, Exodus, Genesis 15, when Abraham is told, you're going to inherit this land, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the sky, and it's, it's going to be wonderful. And then he says, but first, before you do that, but first, you, you, your descendants are going to go and they're going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years until the sin of the Amorite is full. It's a very odd thing to say. I'm going to, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet. Just think about this in terms of revelation. I'm going to give you this land, but not yet. You're going to inherit it. It's as good as yours. Remember, Abraham goes around and he plants altars all over the place. I'm giving you this land, but not yet. For 400 years, your people are going to go be slaves and, and live in a land not their own. And I will bring them back and give this land when the sin of the Amorite is full. The sin of the people who live in this territory. I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to give them 400 years. But eventually their cup will be full. And when it is, I'm going to bring you back and you are going to execute judgment upon them. When the cup is full, his enemies will drink. Well, chapter 16, now it's time to drink. What we get to in chapter 16 with now this series of seven bowls of wrath is a picture of the end. Remember, we've been looking at these parallel pictures, but we're moving toward the end. And now that we get to the seven bowls, we're here. This is the end now. This is a picture of the end, the final judgment. It is as if in the seventh bowl, we're getting to zoom in on the seventh seal and on the seventh trumpet. The the seven bowls of wrath are zooming in now on the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. That is, it's an expanded view of the end. And now there will be no delay. There will be no warning. There will be no call to repentance. It's over. Here we get a picture of that final day. Now, as we enter into this, the theme that should be, the lens that we should be using to interpret these things is that of the Exodus. In chapter 15, which we did not look at, as this vision is introduced, he says this in verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues. So here the bowls are called plagues. And, and John is giving us the interpretive grid. You know, let, let the Exodus story, the ten plagues, be the image that you have as you view what's going on here, right? These, these bowls are like the pouring out of the ten plagues upon Pharaoh. So, so let's think about them for a second. What, what were the plagues? What role did the plagues have? Well, they, had, they, they were like a two-edged sword. They were a two-edged sword, the plagues. On the one hand, they brought absolute destruction. They destroyed Egypt. Frogs and boils and locusts and gnats and blood and darkness and the death of the firstborn. The plagues were destruction on the one hand. But on the other hand, they were deliverance. Right? On the one hand, they destroyed Egypt, but they delivered God's people. And so John, I think, is giving us a clue as we come to that final judgment. Final judgment for those in Christ, as we looked at last week, is not a scary thing. Final judgment is a cause for rejoicing for the people who have been oppressed by the beast. Rejoice. Judgment's coming. He'll make all things right. The plagues are being poured out. Rejoice. Sounds odd. Unless you're the ones being delivered. If you are not the ones being delivered, 
If you stand with the beast, then this should cause you to tremble because they're bad. Okay, so that's, that's the image we get here. And this is why, by the way, the saints are singing in chapter 15. They're singing because this is good and glorious news. Now, we're not going to dive into the, the bowls. I'm going to list them here for you. And we're just going to make some observations. We're going to spend more time on the later bowls. Let me just rattle them off for you. Although, of course, you can read it. But bowls one through five come rapid fire for the most part. Rapid fire. Bowl one are poured out sores for all that have the mark of the beast. Now, again, these are symbolic. Don't, don't forget. It's not as if the very end everybody's going to break out with sores. And you can read and try to figure out what some of the... Some of the um, symbolism is for these things. Uh, maybe there will be sores. I'm not saying there won't be, but I think it's more than that. Sores upon all who have the mark of the beast. Number two, the sea turns to blood and all in the sea dies. Notice the, notice the absolutizing of things now. In the seals, it was a quarter of this died, a quarter of that. In the trumpets, it was a third, a third. A th- now with the seals, everything. Right, we're ramping up. It's progressive parallelism. It's ramping up as we move toward the end. Everything in the sea dies. Number three, the rivers and springs turn to blood. Number four, the sun scorches people. And this is significant because if you remember back in chapter 7, verse 16, when, when God was speaking of his people, remember that beautiful thing he said to them? Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. We're spared from the scorching heat of God's judgment. But not so those upon whom the seals are poured. The sun scorches them. Bowl five, darkness. In all these, you can hear the the, the, uh, plagues in Egypt. right? The rivers turning to blood, sores and boils, darkness and so forth. Okay, so we get through bowls one through five and then we pause. Now we pause after the fifth bowl, and I want us to consider, and then we'll jump to, to uh, bowls six and seven in a second. But just looking at these first five bowls, I want to pause and consider two responses to these uh, bowls, because that's what we get. The fifth, the fifth bowl is given in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And then we get a response. And here, I want us just to reflect upon these two responses to the pouring out of God's bowls of wrath. The first is the response of the wicked. And we get this in verses 9 and 10. Back up in verse 9. They were seared by intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Then we have the pouring out of the next bowl. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and curse the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they refuse to repent of what they have done. So we get this image now as it's finally all being poured out and God's wrath is coming. The response of the wicked is to just bite their tongues. They would rather gnaw their tongues off than repent. They would rather clinch their jaws and gnaw their tongues than give praise and glory to God, they curse and blaspheme God. Verse 9, they refuse to give glory to God. Remember in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For what they knew about, for though they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. 
This is true of all of our neighbors who are very nice people, but who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not denying they're very nice people. But Paul reveals something. They refuse to glorify their God, and they refuse to give him thanks. We're coming up to Thanksgiving. Do you realize so many in the world are going to have thanks? There's no one to thank. They'll thank somebody for the meal. But who do they thank for the sunshine? Who do they thank for the crops that grow? Who do they thank for a heart that beats? Who do they thank for these gifts? There's no one to thank. And they refuse to give thanks. And they refuse to glorify God. This is the response of the wicked as the bowls of wrath come. Now, what's interesting is here, there's a myth busted. You all know that show, Mythbusters? Well, John busts a myth here for us. Because I think people get a vision of hell that one day in hell, right? We kind of have these visions of hell. That in hell, as, as now we have God's wrath poured out for eternity, people are screaming, let, no, you know, let me out of here. And, they're, and, and maybe they're banging on the doors of heaven, please let me in. And God's saying, it's too late for you. Access to, you may not come in here. I think that's a vision a lot of people have of hell. Well, that myth of hell is busted here. What's happening as God's wrath is pouring out? Are people going, oh, God, please, all right, we repent? No, no. They would rather gnaw their tongues off than repent. As Lewis says, C.S. Lewis, the door of hell is locked from the inside. Now, that's Lewis. That's not the Bible, so let's not take it too far. But it's an interesting idea. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. Nobody wants to be in hell. Pharaoh didn't want to have his firstborn die. And Pharaoh didn't want boils. And Pharaoh didn't want gnats. And Pharaoh didn't want frogs. And so he said, okay, 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 to make the pain relent. But in the end, he would not submit to God. He would rather have his firstborn die than submit to God. And you say, how could it be? It is. These people would rather go through the bowls of wrath than repent. So they gnaw their tongues off. Myth busted. People are not begging to get out of heaven. Wrath or out of hell. Wrath will never bring repentance. Remember the trumpet judgments. In the end of the trumpets, all these horrible things, they refuse to repent. Wrath will never bring repentance. Only grace will bring repentance. Only grace will bring repentance. So the first response, we're pausing now between the fifth and the sixth uh, bowl, though the text doesn't really pause, just gives a little sliver, but we're pausing just to think about the response. And then secondly, the response of the righteous. So the response of the wicked, gnaw your tongues off, refuse to, we're not going to repent. Blaspheme God, curse him for these sores and for these plagues. But what is the response of the righteous to the pouring out of the bowls of wrath? Now when I say righteous, let's be real clear here. Be real clear, we're talking about this in apologetics today with the seniors. When I say the response of the wicked and the response of the righteous, what I don't mean is all the good guys are in this room and all the bad guys are out there in the world. I don't mean, wick, I don't mean wicked and righteous that way. We know from the book of Revelation who are the righteous. The righteous are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. We're righteous in the psalmist, the way the psalmist talks about the righteous. We're not righteous because we're just morally better than those people. So we're considered the righteous. No, 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 we're wicked. We're wicked, but we're forgiven. Our robes are white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
It's one of those revelation paradoxes. Our robes are white because they've been washed in blood. So when I say the response of the righteous, make sure you don't misunderstand me here. Let's not mischaracterize ourselves. But the response of the righteous is to agree with the angelic praise. There is a pause in this text, and it comes uh, after, in verse 4, after the pouring out of the third bowl. Excuse me, verse 5. Then I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, remember the, the bowl has just been poured out on the waters, they've turned to blood. And the, the angel who's in charge of the water says, you are just in these judgments. Remember, these are pretty nasty judgments. You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One. Remember, not and who will be or who is to come. This is the coming. You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged for they have shed the blood of your saints, the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. You have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then John hears something. Verse 7. Then I heard the altar respond. What do you mean the altar respond? Well, who's under the altar? Do you all remember? The, the, the martyrs. The martyrs. The martyrs who had been crying out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, holy and true, how long? You know, they're the ones crying out, Lord, when are you going to put this to an end? And so the angel, in the midst of the pouring out of these bowls of wrath, the angel starts celebrating God. You are holy and just, Lord. These judgments are right. And then John hears the altar talking. The martyrs under the altar, and they join in. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is a great text because we're here at the end, and we hear the martyrs satisfied. Earlier, we heard them crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? There's this, when, Lord, when are you going to put it to an end? But here we get to the end, and the martyrs are satisfied. Yes, Lord, your judgments are true and righteous. I just think this is so important for us, because, because we, if we believe that, that the martyrs who have gone through that great affliction, and remember, the martyrs are bigger than just those who have been killed for the faith. We're all martyrs in that sense. We're all called to be faithful witnesses unto the death, whatever that means for us. Even if it's death to sin today, death to, to my own lusts today, right? In that way, we all are to crucify our flesh. And we look forward to the end and the martyrs are saying, yes, Lord, I'm satisfied. Which means that now, when we can identify with the cry, now's the time where we can identify with the cry of the martyrs if we're really suffering for the gospel. But what this tells us is, be patient. It's coming. You've already been able to look forward now and see the day is coming when those who suffer for Christ will be satisfied. And you know what that means? That means now you can serve God faithfully. You can throw caution to the wind for the glory of God. Because you know how it ends, right? You can look at the box top. You can see it. I'm going to be satisfied. There's not one bit of injustice or, that's going to be poured out on me, not one bit of suffering that I'm not on that day going to say, yes, Lord, you are faithful and true, and you kept your word to vindicate me and to vindicate your honor and your glory. Throw caution to the wind. Serve and serve faithfully. Love your, how can you love your enemies? This is why you can love your enemies. Because you know in the end, 
no matter what they do to you, you will be satisfied by the judgment of God. So we pause to consider these responses, the response of the wicked and the response of the righteous. Now back to the bowls. Verse 12, bowl six. The bowl six in bowl six, nothing amazing happens. But the sixth bowl is characterized now by the gathering of armies. Uh-oh, here we're moving. Now we're moving toward the big showdown. The thing that people know from the book of Revelation, the battle of Armageddon. <laughs> There's some things just everybody knows about Revelation. You know, that's one of them, the battle of Armageddon. So in the sixth bowl now, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and the river was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, again, we, we just don't have time to, to uh, go into this in great depth. But for the readers, when they would hear an army from the kings of the east, it would send like chills down their spine. All the amazing armies came out of the east. For if you were, if you were a Jew, it was the Babylonians who came out of the east. If you were a Babylonian, it was the Persians that came out of the east. The Assyrians came out of the east. The Romans were scared of the Parthians who were going to come out of the east. Everybody was scared. It's just, I don't know what this, what happened to the west. The east is where all these amazing armies were. So when he says the Lord is assembling an army out of the east, these kings out of the east, that was meant to send chills down the spine of the readers. There's an army gathering by God that is going to bring destruction upon the beast. But this is countered by the anti-Trinity's army gathered. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. False prophet is the beast um, out of the sea. Remember, he prophesies about the beast. He sees these three spirits that come out like frogs. I think the image there is of the plagues. Remember, the the plague of the frogs was one of those plagues where the magicians were able to duplicate what Moses did. And so the, the, I, think what, I think what's going on here is that the anti-trinity now spews out these deceiving spirits to deceive the nations, to gather now as an army opposed to the army of the Lord. They are the spirits of demons performing miracles and signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. Then verse 15, Behold, I I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes on so that he may not go naked. We're going to talk about that in a second. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now Armageddon means Mount Megiddo. That's Har in in Hebrew uh, means mountain and Megiddo is a place. Now the problem with this is Megiddo is not a mountain. It's actually a plain. So there's uh, some, some symbolic imagery going on here. But in the plains of Megiddo, many battles were fought in the Old Testament. Gideon and Deborah fought battles there. Megiddo was a place where the Lord delivered his people time and time and time again. And so the image is here now, this great, this final climactic showdown, if you will, is going to take place. But where is it going to take place? In the place where God has consistently delivered his people. Now, we don't get the battle yet. That's going to come. That's going to be in chapter 19. Well, hopefully we'll get there by... by, uh, the end of the evening. So it's just left there. So bowl six, the armies gather, and then boom, we leave it there. Bowl seven, the final pouring out of the bowl of judgment. We're told in verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. 
And yet, we're only in chapter 16. So, it's done, but we still got more of the book to get through. So we'll have, to, we'll have to deal with that in a second. This is the last of the last, and yet there's more of the book to go. So we'll have to deal with that. The angel pours out this seventh bowl, and a voice comes out of the throne room saying, It is done. Now we're going to hear that again in chapter 21, verse 6. In this chapter, it is done, but looking at things very negatively, the pouring out of wrath. In chapter 21, it is done, but in this time, new creation. So we're going to get two glimpses of the end here. This is the really negative one, like the harvest of grapes. But then we're going to, in 21, we're going to get this awesome, it is done, but it's going to be a glorious picture as we come in now to the new creation. That's 21 verse 6, if I'm correct. This is the end. And we get this cosmic crescendo that we've been talking about over and over again in verse 18. Then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake that the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed and God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of the hail, because the plague was so terrible. Now what we get here in verse 19, the image of this judgment coming, is that God remembers Babylon. So we get this cosmic vision. We've seen that. It's an image of judgment, the final judgment. But in verse 19, the, uh, the great city splits into three parts, and God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. God remembered Babylon. This is a covenantal remembering. It's not like, oh, I forgot about Babylon. Oh, yeah, Babylon. The remembering here is a covenantal remembering. It's God remembering what he promised to his people. He told the martyrs under the altar just a little longer. And what we're told here is he will not forget. He remembers the sins of Babylon. He remembers every single one of them and they will be paid for. They will drink that cup to the dregs is the image. It's the very thing we don't get. We're forgiven and we're told he remembers our sins no more. So again, just like the scorching heat that comes upon, but we don't get the scorching heat. So God remembers Babylon and her sins, but our sins he will remember no more. God remembers his promises. Okay, I want to make some considerations. This is number four on the outline there for you. I want to make um, a couple, two considerations uh, in light of chapter 16. First consideration, be ready. Be ready. Now, I'm getting this from verse 15 because tucked into this text, here we get these bowls of wrath just being poured out, pretty rapid fire, all seven of them, coming down rapid fire, no chapter break anymore. But then tucked into the text is a word of the Lord to us in verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. And then a blessing, one of the seven blessings of the book. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. So the first consideration is be ready. The Lord says, I am coming. Stay awake. Be sober. One of the things we're going to look at in the next chapter as we start to look at the, the, the temptation we have with the harlot is that of drunkenness. 
We get in a drunken stupor when we get around the harlot of culture. Don't do that. Stay awake. Remember what he told the church at Sardis? Stay awake. I'm coming like a thief. And so also to us, the church here, stay awake and keep your clothes on. Get out of bed. Get dressed so that when I come, you are prepared and your shame will not be exposed. And here I think of the passage of Scripture that saved St. Augustine. St. Augustine was saved when he was out in a garden in Milan and he heard a voice saying, Tolalege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he, he couldn't figure out where the voice was coming from and he thought, Maybe there's a children's game. Could children be running? Is there a children's game that says pick up and read? And he thought, no. No, so there can't be a children. So he said, where's this voice coming from? And he can't find, and he just thinks it must be for me. And if you know the biography of Augustine, he's just at such a point. He's, he, he says at one point in his confessions, he says, I, I knew it was true. I just didn't want to stop sinning. Like, I knew it was true. I just could, I, I wanted my sin more than I wanted it. That's what it comes down to. So he'd been tugged and tugged and tugged. And then he hears this voice, pick up and read, pick up and read. And, and so he does, and he, he flops the Bible open and puts his finger in. And the text he comes to is to Romans 13. And let's just, uh, let me read it, this passage from 11 to 14. It's 13 and 14 that really convert him. But I want to go back to 11 and just let's, let's feel this in light of the call to us. Be ready. Keep your clothes on. Stay awake. Paul writes this to the Romans. And do this understanding the time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of the darkness. And put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. See, John's giving that to us here. Be ready, stay alert. You don't know when the thief is coming. You don't know when the Lord is coming. And, and we don't need to be thinking about the end times for this. You don't know when your day is up. You don't know. It may be in a ripe old age. It may be on the way home. You have no idea. Be ready. Wake up. Put your clothes on. Clothe yourselves in Christ. Know that the, the night is passing. Day is here. Your salvation is nearer today than it was this, uh, yesterday. For one, because you're closer to death today than you were yesterday. And we together are closer to the end than we were yesterday. So wake up and get dressed and don't be caught off guard so that your shame will be exposed. Put on the clothes that he gave you. So given what we're supposed to take, this isn't my point to you. This is God's point to you. He just interjects this in verse 15 in the middle of the plagues. Be ready, I'm coming. And the second consideration in light of the bulls is treasure. And we're going to come back to this theme. Treasure Jesus Christ. Cling to Jesus Christ. Even in the, even in the text that converts Augustine, what is important in that text? Clothe yourselves. How? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Treasure him. Now, now the reason I'm mentioning this is because of the phrase in the, in the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Out of the temple came a loud voice saying, it is done. Now, where have we heard that before? It is finished. On the cross. On the cross. It is finished. We heard that at Calvary, at Golgotha. We heard, it is finished. Well, wait a second. Well, when is it finished then? Was it finished in 30 AD? Or is it finished at the end of the seventh bowl? When is it finished? And the answer is, depends who you trust in. Depends what you're clothed in. Do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then, brothers and sisters, it was finished in 30 AD. On 30 AD, the seventh bowl of wrath was poured out at Golgotha, and Jesus drank it to the dregs. Cling to him. If you refuse the Lord Jesus Christ, then it will be done when you meet him. And you will drink the seventh cup, and it will be an infinite cup to drink. I don't say this lightly or glibly. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, then let us rejoice and let us treasure Jesus Christ that you will never have to drink this cup. These bowls of wrath are not for you to drink, for he drank that cup to the dregs. Hey, wait a second. In Psalm 75, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it to the dregs. What's Jesus doing drinking that cup? You know what he's doing. He's drinking it for you. You're the wicked. And he says, I'll take it. I'll drink it so that they never have to think about drinking that cup. Second consideration is treasure Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ, lest you drink the cups of God's wrath. Okay, so those are the bowls. Chapter 16. We're cooking along here. Chapter 17. Now, let's introduce a new vision. A new vision in chapter 17... Chapter 17 through 19. Now, again, progressive parallelism. Now we're coming back again. But now these cycles, we're not getting much of the beginning. Now we're just getting the end. And even though the seven bowls of wrath were the end, it's almost as if the seventh bowl is the end. It's done. But John's going to linger here. And he's going to give us some time to reflect upon what it means that it's done. And so now what we're going to get a chance to see is God's judgment poured out. What do the bowls mean for the harlot? We haven't really met the harlot yet. We're going to meet her right now. The harlot. What does the bowls mean for the beast? Next week, chapter 20, what do the bowls mean for the dragon? And then finally, 21 and 22, what does it mean for us now to come through this judgment? So we're all at the end now. Everything now is at the end. We're at the end of the end. And we're taking some time to consider. So, chapter 17 through 19, the judgment of the harlot and the beast. Point one, the introduction of the harlot. Chapter 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute 
who sits on the many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, what we're getting here, we're not getting introduced to a new character. What we're getting introduced to here is a new perspective on the one character of Rome. But, of course, we know much more than Rome. Every Rome throughout all the ages. America potentially included. Every nation potentially included. The harlot is an image of Rome, but this time her beauty. Not her ferocity. Her beauty. Her culture. And Rome was beautiful. And here we have another tactic of the dragon. I told you before, the dragon will, t- the dragon will get to you anyway. He will get to you through the ferocity of the beast. If that will cower and make you, make you compromise, happy to do it. If he can get you, if he can send a beauty like the harlot and get you to commit adultery with her, he's happy to do that too. He'll do it through pleasure. He'll do it through pain. Either way, right? Two tactics of the dragon that we get here, the beast and the harlot. Well, now we're being introduced to the harlot. Who is she? Well, verse two, she is the one with whom the kings of the earth have committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. She seduces the kings of the earth Oh man, how kings are seduced by power and glory. They just all go down, right? They get into power. We see it with our own politicians. They get into positions of power. They seem like principled men and women. Then they get in that place of power and all of a sudden the harlot starts having her way with them. They like the power and all kinds of compromise. The kings of the earth have been seduced by her and committed adultery, spiritual adultery with her. But not just the kings, by the way. Not just the kings, uh, chapter 17, but all the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. She makes them drunk with her beauty and with her promises. She gets them drunk. So who is she? She's the one, and think about Rome here, but we're not in Rome, so we have to apply it to us. But Rome seducing the kings of the earth. Octavian's great Pax Romana. Think about all the things we can offer you if you come in and join with Rome. Peace and prosperity and Things you can get in Rome, you can't get anywhere else in the world. But if you come in here and be with us, think about all the benefits that will be for you. But it's going to come at a cost. Every prostitute charges. And so the prostitute of Rome will also charge for the benefits that she gives. So first, she's the one who seduces the kings and all the inhabitants of the earth. Secondly, she rides upon the beast. Verse 3, then the angel carried me away into the spirit, in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. Now here we see the beast and the harlot. Don't think of them as two separate characters. Right? Oh, who's the harlot that rides among? The image we have here is one thing. The beast is the ferocity of Rome the injustice of Rome, the oppression, the exploitation of Rome. But the harlot rides upon the beast. Right? They work in concert together. The harlot, the culture of Rome, the beauty of Rome, the seductive promises of Rome are empowered by the beastly nature of Rome. What makes Rome beautiful are the provisions that Rome is able to give and bring to its culture because of its injustice, because of its exploitation around the globe. That makes the harlot beautiful. But the beauty of the harlot distracts you from the oppression of the beast. They work together. The harlot gets her beauty from the beast and the beast gets away with it because of the beauty of the harlot. People are willing to overlook things because they really love the harlot. She is beautiful. 
She's giving me what I want. I don't look at the beast. In fact, I need the beast because the beast is making her beautiful. So they're working in concert together. Verse 4, she is glorious. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and with the filth of her adulteries. And the title was on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. She's beautiful. That's the idea here. She's beautiful. She's glorious. She's dressed in purple, regal, gold, precious stones. What we're going to see is this really a parody of the church when we get to chapters 21 and 22. The church, the New Jerusalem, has precious metals and precious stones and gold. She's, she's, a, she's a fake. She's the harlot. We're the bride, right? But she's beautiful. She's a parody of the bride. In fact, she's so beautiful that in verse 3, in order for John to look at her, to understand her rightly, verse 3, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. Right? John has to get away to get perspective, to see that he has to go into a desert so that he can look at her and see her rightly. And we're going to find John gets caught staring, actually, at her. She's so beautiful. So she is glorious. Make no mistake about it. So first, we get the introduction to the harlot, the culture of Rome. Then, number two, we get reintroduced to the beast. Now, this is this section that, that we're going to just glance over here is really complicated. And if you're interested in studying the thorny, tangled interpretations of Revelation, this is the text for you. This passage on the reintroduction of the beast. We get this in um, uh, verse 7. The angel said, oh no, uh, verse 8. The beast which you saw once uh, the beast which you saw once was now is not and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book in the book of life from creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Oh yes it does. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. So I'm going to leave you all with that. Just take <laughs> good, good luck with that. Now, there, there are thoughts about this, and, and I'd just rather spend our time on other things. But I, I will tell, I'll just give you some thoughts about this and then... If you feel compelled, you can, go, you can go try and untangle these knots. And I think they can be, they can be untangled. But let's just say something, because the beast is now being reintroduced to us. We saw him back in chapter 13, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land. But now, now he's giving us a little different vision of this beast. So let's, let's uh, reintroduce ourselves to him. The first thing about the beast that we get in this text is, and we've mentioned this before, he is a parody of God. He's a parody of God. Remember, we said he's the Antichrist. He's a parody of God. Now, we get this, though these things are tough to understand, this we can understand, his name. Or not, well, his name, but the way he's described, right? Um, We get it three times in this text, actually. But in verse 8, the beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and will come. Now, John is playing with us here. 
Because remember the way God was described. The God who was and who is and is to come. Well, now this parody of God, this, par- this antichrist, how's he described? And John's playing with him. He is the one who once was, is not, but who will come again unto destruction. So he's playing on that divine name, but he's the anti that, right? He, he once was, but he is not. And he's going to come again, right? The beast continues to reappear throughout history. But when he reappears, he will come unto destruction. Whereas God is the one who was and who is eternally and who will come in judgment upon the beast. So one thing we can take from this, again, is John just, is just giving us this parody of the divine. And all, all realms, all statist powers are parodies of the divine. It's what big status governments do. They make claims that God makes. They make promises that God makes. What they, what they ultimately tell people, and sadly, uh, the scary part is people believe them, is to say, I can look to the state for that which God promises me. The state sort of bumps God out of the way and says, no, 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 I'll, I'll provide these things for you. And we give them more and more and more trust and more and more Power, because we believe their utopian visions. We believe their promises, these divine-like promises and claims that they can make. Outrageous claims that any common-sense person should go, human beings can't provide these things to us. This kind of peace, this kind of contentment, this kind of security, this kind of freedom from risk. Life doesn't work that way. And yet the state says, no, 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 trust us. We'll give it to you. And it's not, this appears all throughout history. We hear echoes of it in our, own, in our own government. From our own government, we hear little echoes, sometimes not so little echoes of this. So there's a parody of the divine. Second point about the reintroduction of the beast, and just get ready for this. I should have put this on the board because you're going to go, you're going to say, what? The beast is, <laughs> I, feel, I feel silly even saying this. I made it up. The beast is a trans-historical conglomeration of power. <laughs> That's just fun to say. A trans-historical conglomeration of power. Now, what I mean by that is we should not associate the beast with Rome, though it is Rome. Now, I'm, I'm getting this in this text as we try to think about who this beast is. I get this from, from, uh, from this in verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, remember the beast has seven heads. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, if you know anything about history, you know when you hear seven hills, bing, 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 lights go off, right? That's Rome. Rome is the seven-hilled city. So when, when he says that, I think he's saying, you all understand what I'm talking about, right? The beast is Rome, and the woman sits upon her. But just as you want to say, okay, it's Rome, and that's the only beast that ever was, it just it doesn't work out that easily. Because it is Rome, The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, but they are also seven kings. All right, so now it's not just seven hills. And the word here for kings can also be translated kingdoms. So, and seven is more than just, hey, let me see how many there are. One, two. No, we know seven means completeness. So I think John's doing a couple things here. That's why I say trans-historical. Because it is historical. I mean, Rome was the beast. If you were living here, Rome is the beast in a very particular way. But the, but the beast cannot be limited to Rome because the seven hills are also seven kings or kingdoms. 
Potentially all the kingdoms of the world can fall into this. And then there's ten horns. And the ten horns are ten kings. And so we, we have, I think, what's going on. So trans-historical conglomeration of power. That is, it's just from all over the place. It's just a hodgepodge of power. I don't care where it is. Sometimes it's over here. Sometimes it's over there. It's trans-historical. It pops its up, head up here. It pops its head up there. But it is power, and it's power that opposes Christ and his church. Third thing we learn about the beast here, and, and we've already seen this too. He makes war on the lamb. He makes war on the lamb. Verse 14, and they will make war against the lamb. That's what the beast is here to do. He's empowered by the dragon to make war on the lamb. Point four, but the lamb conquers him. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. That is these kings because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The lamb Conquers. Remember back in chapter 13 when we were first introduced to the beast, we were told an authority was given to him to conquer us. So the first time we met the beast, the beast was given the authority to trample us. Now we see the beast and the lamb is trampling him. Again, this is to bolster us. If sometimes we feel ourselves getting trampled over by the beast as the church, fear not. The day is coming when the Lamb will conquer him. And we're going to see. It's as good as done as we'll get to in chapter 18 after, uh, after coffee. So the Lamb will conquer the beast. Again, one of those revelation paradoxes. The Lamb conquer the beast? Yeah. It's a special Lamb. And then fifth thing we see about the beast in this reintroduction is that ultimately the beast and the harlot will self-destruct. Evil cannot prevail. We're gonna, I'll make that point in a second. Let me not get ahead of myself. But the beast and the harlot will self-destruct. Listen to verses 15 to 18. Where am I? Then the angel said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns uh, you saw will hate the prostitute. Well, wait a second. She was riding upon the beast. Now they will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin. They will leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. In the end, it implodes. It implodes. You ever get frustrated when government starts looking really beastly? Just know, it ultimately implodes. It can't prevail. Evil can't win. In the end, it turns on, right? The harlot's riding, the, riding on the back of the beast. She's the beauty. She's distracting everybody from the beast. The beast is tearing people apart and taking what they have and making the harlot beautiful. And you go, My, remember, the, remember the people cried out when they saw the beast come back and they said, who can make war against this beast? And you look at the harlot and they say, who can resist that harlot? They just seem like they're going to win, but in the end, they can't, it cannot be sustained. Ultimately, it implodes. Ultimately, the beast turns on the harlot and destroys the harlot. Ultimately, Rome's power destroyed her beauty. It actually worked out in history, if you know anything about Roman history. As you march toward the 5th century, in 400, Rome was starting to decay and crumble. They empowered other kings, ten kings, 
I don't know if there's literally ten, but they empowered the Visigoths in the north. They made peace with the Visigoths. They come in and enjoy the beauty of this culture. And the Visigoths said, yeah, okay. But then eventually the Visigoths got sick of Rome. Rome didn't keep her promises. They were so concerned about maintaining their power, they didn't keep their promises to the Visigoths. And the Visigoths marched right down and sacked Rome. And for the next 100 years, from about 410 to about 500, Rome just slowly just broke apart and crumbled as the beast now turned upon the harlot. And when it was all, all said and done, the harlot was not so beautiful anymore. And we're going to see after coffee what she begins to look like. It, it can't sustain itself. It doesn't win. Be confident in that. Ultimately, it self-destructs. Okay, a couple considerations on this, and then we'll break. A couple considerations. How many do I have? Four. And when my considerations, when I say considerations, I just mean I'm going to preach. That's all I mean. I, they're not, I'm just preaching about it. First consideration, evil can look really attractive. I'm just saying this pastorally to you with these considerations. It's just things I want to say to you about this. The first point is evil can look really attractive. Rome was really beautiful. So beautiful, actually, if you, if you saw this, I don't know if you caught this, in verse 7 of chapter 17, that John actually gets caught staring at her. It's, a, it's actually, it's kind of a funny line. When I saw her, this is, oh, this is the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So he's just looking at this beautiful whore. And he just gets caught staring. It's a little embarrassing. He's looking at her, and he's just in awe. The word for astonished here is not like shocked. It's in awe. She's beautiful. John is caught staring. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? Like, why? Stop staring. And we'll talk about who she really is. He's going to strip her, and we're going to see who she really is. But evil can look really attractive, so attractive that John actually gets caught staring. So be careful. Look, you have to be careful. Because it's not just Rome's culture that's really beautiful. America's culture is really beautiful. And brothers and sisters, it's loaded with idolatry. It's saturated with idolatry. Be careful. It's beautiful. You will get caught staring. It requires real discipline. This is where your Christian life has to, has to be engaged every second of the day. You spend a lot of time with this harlot. You need to be disciplined. You need discernment. You need accountability. It's like a man, a married man, who has a drop-dead gorgeous secretary. Can you do it? Sure you can, it's possible. Oh, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Or women. It's like a woman who has that partner at work who is very handsome and very attentive. I know the things that matter to women. He's very, and there's trouble at home. Okay, so it's like every bad movie, all right? There's trouble at home. The husband's been spending way too much time at work, not giving you the attention. You're going through a lot of trouble, and you've got this really handsome guy at work who just happens to be the next desk over, and he just says, tell me, I'm just so interested in your, tell me that, what's happening? Oh, boy, can you work next to that guy? Yeah. Oh, but it's really dangerous. That's the reality we're faced here. Can you live in this amazing American culture and be faithful to your bridegroom? Sure, sure. Oh, but it's really dangerous. 
Just know that. If you know that going in and you say to the, to the woman next to you who's working at the other desk, say, hey, would you hold me accountable? Don't let me look into his eyes for too long. Or you get other people who say, look, my, this secretary is drop-dead gorgeous. I'm going to make sure the door's open all the time. I want somebody else with me when I meet with them. You, you put pastors have to do You hold yourself accountable. Right? You have to have discernment and discipline. If you just think, no, I can do it. You're done. Men or women, you're done. So evil can look really beautiful. The American culture is beautiful, and it will woo you toward idolatry. Second consideration, evil can be really intimidating. So again, harlot beast. It can be beastly with real victims. The book of Revelation is in fun and games. Like real people die. Remember Antipas? Back in, where was it, Pergamum? People are going to die because of this beast. It can be really scary. So pray up now. Pray, pray. Pray for courage. Pray for boldness. Pray for perspective. Like Joseph Zahn, who has perspective. Sir, you cannot threaten me with glory. He says in his little squeaky voice, you can't threaten me with glory, sir. Yeah. Yeah, pray for that now. Get it now. Keep training yourself with those lenses so when the day of affliction comes, man, you've got it in reserve. Remember, drink, drink, drink. So when the sun blisters, you've got it in reserve. Third consideration. Evil is under God's authority. Evil is under God's authority. This is a mystery, but it's an absolute certainty. Evil, the worst the beast can do, the greatest seductions the harlot can do, are under the sovereign authority of God. Did you hear at the end of chapter 17 these words? The beast with the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her. Now listen to verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. Wow. Evil is under the sovereign authority of God. And as a Christian, that should comfort you in the face of real trouble and real affliction. You've got to trust him. He's the God who sent his son for you. He, you can trust him. You can trust him when you cry out to God and they kill you anyway. You can trust him. He is at work in and through this. He is refining you through this. He is gathering his church through this. He's letting the beast fill up the cup of his wrath through this. And he will be glorified through this. Remember what he said to Pharaoh in Romans 9? Well, he didn't say it in Romans 9. Uh, Paul is quoting it in Romans 9. Amazing passage in Romans 9. Paul, speaking of the sovereignty of God, says, And thus the Lord said to Pharaoh, I, This is the Lord speaking to Pharaoh. I raised you up for this very purpose, that my name might be glorified through you. How was God's name glorified through Pharaoh? Crushing him by pulling back his restraints and letting Pharaoh fill it with evil, and then pulling back the restraints in the second plague and letting him fill it with evil, and pulling back the restraints in the third plague and filling it with evil, and letting it fill up to the tenth plague, and then drawing him into the Red Sea and crushing him. And the Lord says, I raised you up for that, Pharaoh. You're a pawn. You think you're opposing my people? You think you're opposing me? I raised you up for this very purpose 
that my power might be glorified in you. Now, you've got to believe that. You've got to believe that when you face evil, when you face suffering, the Lord is sovereign. Fourth consideration, then coffee. Evil, and we already said it. Evil cannot stand. It will implode. The Lord will bring it down. Ultimately, all the promises of the harlot cannot bring life, prosperity, or satisfaction, and the Lamb will overcome them. You know this. I was saying this to church on Sunday. Karen was there, Chris. You've got to know the story you're in. And the book of Revelation is helping us this way. You've got to know the story you're in. If you believe this story, right? If you believe this story, then you know how it ends. Right? People say, oh, what's the, what's the theme of the book of Revelation? Jesus wins. Yes, yes. That's the theme of the book. Do you know you're in that story? If you know you're in that story, you'll be amazed what you can endure because you know how the story ends. The chapter you're in may be really rough. It may, the chapter may not end well. I mean, that's the reality. It doesn't end well for a lot of people. Ultimately, it doesn't end well for we all die. But it may be a really scary chapter. It may be a really dark chapter. It may be a really bright and beautiful chapter. But you know in every chapter of the story, you know how the story ends. Evil is defeated. The lamb wins. And that should free you. It should free you to go. It should free you to live. But you've got you to drill this story into your head. Coffee, we've got two more chapters to go. I've got to get through 18 and 19. Have to do it. So get five-minute coffee. This is, a, this is a, a quick coffee. All right, go, and we'll come back and do this thing. All right, let's get going here. Let's jump into chapter 18. Number four, the judgment of the harlot. Now, we've had her introduced. We've seen the beast reintroduced. Now, in chapter 18, we, it turns to the judgment of the harlot. And then 19, the judgment of the beast. In our text, chapter 18, in this judgment, I want us to look at it by listening to two voices. There are two voices speak out in this text. The first is a voice spoken to Babylon. Now, Babylon is the harlot. It's just there. It's just... John's word for the harlot, calling, her, calling Rome Babylon, this beautiful and attractive city. So the first voice is going to be to Babylon, the harlot, and then secondly, there's going to be a voice to you and me. Okay, so this book is applicable to us. All right, so let's, let's consider first the voice to Babylon. It's a voice of judgment. Verse eight, uh, chapter 18, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So in in chapter 18, verse 1, this first voice speaks out of heaven, and it is a voice of judgment. Judgment spoken in the prophetic past tense. Remember, we're looking off into the future here, but the voice comes and speaks in the past tense. Repetition. Fallen, Fallen is Babylon the great. She is judged. Her coming down is certain. Now, what's interesting is for John, it wasn't for another 300 years. John's in 90 AD. It won't really be till 410 that Rome comes down. And then 100 years after that till it really is gone. So here, in the, though he's got 300 years to go, his audience is reading this and being told it's, it's already done. It's certain The harlot is going down. Babylon will fall. uh, This comes out of Isaiah 21, 
by the way. Isaiah 21, Isaiah is prophesying to his people who are going off into exile to Babylon. Right? And as they're going off into exile, Isaiah says this. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. We'll get to the man on the horse in a minute in, our, in uh, Revelation. They're going off into exile. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Well, man, it sure doesn't feel like Babylon's fallen. They're dragging us off into captivity. But as they're going off into captivity, the word is ringing in their ear. They are done. It's just going to be a matter of time. So the word comes to them, a word of judgment. Now, what's the motivation for this judgment? We get two motivations for this judgment from the angel of the Lord. I mean, it doesn't, we don't have to be rocket scientists to figure these out, but they are given to us. First, in verse 3. Now, I'm going to be jumping all over the text here, so just bear with me. I'll tell you where I am. Verse 3, here's the first reason for the judgment, her seductions. For all, why are we judging her? Because all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So the first reason for the judgment is because of her seduction to the nations. God wants the nations. He will have them all. All authority is mine in heaven and earth. And she has made them drunk and committed fornication with them, and therefore she will go down. She's promised them power and prosperity at a cost. The cost is to the nations. You can enjoy all the benefits of Rome. You just have to accept her claims. You have to participate in her exploitation, her persecution, her oppression. And if the beast butters your bread, right? if the beast is giving you all these great benefits and you're attracted to the beauty of, her, of his harlot, then when you see the injustice, you clam up. Because if you start pointing out the injustice, if you start protesting against the injustice of the beast, then you lose out on the goodies of the harlot. That's the way this works. She gets them drunk so they don't see clearly. I, can, I, I just think of this in our own culture. I just want to say we were having this conversation. I want to be real clear once again. I do not want to associate America with the beast, capital T, capital B. As if somehow there is this beast that we're waiting to see and that will be the end. America is potentially beastly in as much as any other country is potentially beastly. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have your antenna up to hear resonances and echoes of, of the beast. Or, you know, you look out because it's there. It's laying latent in every power. And the harlot too, Okay. But I just think in our culture, right, the, this is what the beast does and how the harlot works. They get you drunk so that you begin not to see clearly. And I just think of this in a very simple way, politically speaking. As we become a country, a nation that lives more and more off of the quote-unquote benefits of the government on government goodies, as we become more and more, I'm, now I'm, I'm not criticizing every one of them, but I'm just saying, as we become a nation that lives more and more and benefits off of government goodies, what will happen to us? You, who's going to stand up and start opposing the beast? Who's going to start standing up and saying, no, 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 th this whole system is going bad? Who's going to say that? Because you lose the goodies. And it gets you drunk. So that you don't see clearly anymore. I mean, how many people do you hear say, oh, the government will pay for it? The government will pay for it. Whether it's health care. Or anything. What do you mean the government will pay? You're drunk. 
How's the government pay for it? You know how the government pays for it? It takes it from Peter, and it gives it to Paul, and it paid for it. There, that's done. No, 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 no. Peter paid for it. But see, we become drunk, and all of a sudden that lingo, we're, we're, stu- we're just stammering around. Ah, the government will pay for it. Just one instance of how the harlot gets you drunk. All of a sudden, you're just not thinking clearly. No, that's not how it works. Think for a couple seconds, and you realize the government has no money of its own. It takes from this person, gives to that person. And we all agree sometimes that needs to be done. We need to have a military. But when we start to build programs upon programs upon programs, and the harlot offers you more and more and more and more, then what begins to happen? We all shut our mouths. We don't want to say anything about the beastly potentials within our government. That's a real danger. So the first reason, the first motivation there is because of her seduction. The second motivation comes for God's judgment against her comes in verse 7, and that is her arrogance. Her arrogance, verse 7. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. I'm a queen. I'm not a widow. I'm self-sufficient. I need nothing. I will never mourn. In verse 5 it says, where's verse 5? For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because I think the image there of her sins being piled up into heaven, what is, what is the relation to that and her arrogance? When it says her sins are piled up into heaven, I think what we're supposed to hear, the little echo we're supposed to hear there, if we have biblical ears to hear, is the Tower of Babel, or Babel. Remember that story? Genesis 11? What was the sin of the Tower of Babel? Arrogance self-sufficiency, see, self-sufficiency, self-preservation. Come, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build for ourselves a tower that reaches up into the heaven, lest they come and scatter us. Let us make a name for ourselves. And I love Moses' humor. You've got to have biblical ears to hear humor in the Bible, but it's there. Because in Genesis 11, they build this tower that reaches up into the heavens. And then Moses says, and so the Lord God came down to see this work that they had done. That's Moses telling the biblical joke. They're building a tower that reaches up into heaven and God's saying, what what tower? I can't even see it. He has to come down to look at this little tower that they, oh, look at that. And they're building it and they're saying, let us make a name for ourselves. We will be great. And the Lord says, you're done. Knocks it over, disperses them, scatters them. It doesn't end well when the Lord comes down to see, and it doesn't end well here for Babylon. Verse 2. So again, I'm, I'm hopping all over the place. Listen to this. The harlot that looks so beautiful, look, look what happens when the Lord strips her. And it's graphic, but Revelation's graphic. You know what I'm saying. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. (laughs) I don't even know. I couldn't draw that for you. I just know it's dark. It's haunted. It's creepy. Like cobwebs all over the place. Skeletons, unclean bird. Just flying around. It's, It's awful. Look at the harlot. Look at the harlot. Look at what she is. She says, oh, I'm beautiful. I'm a queen. I need nothing. I'll never mourn. 
The Lord comes down to see her beauty, strips her beauty from her, and what she's exposed to be is something wretched. She's a hag. She passed herself off as a queen. She passed herself off as something beautiful, but now she's stripped and she's exposed as desolate. Boy, this is this you and I, when we look and, and hear the wooing of our culture, this harlot, this should tell us, don't be wooed by it. This is what it really is. Even the American culture, and I, I love so many things, and I'm going to tell you in a minute. I'm, I'm not saying don't enjoy anything American culture. I'm going to come to that point in a second. I, I love a lot of things in the American culture. But don't be wooed by her fornications. Don't get drunk with her because underneath, this is what she is. The American culture that does not embrace Jesus Christ is nothing more than dead man's bones. It's a haunt for demons and evil spirits and unclean birds. It's got cobwebs. It's a hag. Don't fall for it. She looks so beautiful. She will not please you. She will not satisfy you. It's a facade. So we're told the judgment comes, just like to Babel, and he destroys it. The judgment comes upon this Babel and exposes her, and she's disgusting. And this judgment, verse 8, comes quickly. Therefore, In one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. Think about Rome. Centuries to build. Rome is amazing. You go back and look at their city and their kingdom and their empire, their engineering. It's worth looking at. You will be like John, drooling. Awesome. Centuries to build that. Centuries a day, gone. That's the image here. Took centuries to get that beauty in one day. Stripped. Gone. And this, we should be warned in our culture or anything else. Just because it's been around a long time doesn't mean it'll be around much longer. We should all take warning of that. Centuries to build. Boom. Gone. And by the way, true in our lives too. I mean, I don't mean to depress you, but... So many people, you spend your whole life just like Rome did in a kingdom. We can make this person. You spend your whole life trying to be something. You spend your whole life trying to gather something, make a name for yourself. And then, I mean, how many times? We've seen it. I don't mean to bring up bad memories for anybody. But then, boom, one day, it's gone. It's amazing. I mean, this is reality. It just tells you, be careful where you invest yourself. And that's what we're going we're gonna to see here in a moment. Man, stay sober. Stay sober. So the first voice is a voice of the Lord in judgment. Then we get a second voice, verse 4. And this is a voice to you and me. And this is the real challenging one. But if we've been listening long, we'll, we'll be prepared for it. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. So that you will not share in her sins. So that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her. This is the word of the Lord to you and me come out of her. The image here is that of Moses. Let my people go. Come on, guys, let's go. We're out of here, right? I'm going to leave Egypt behind. Or of Isaiah in Jeremiah in Babylon. Come on, guys, let's go. We did our time here in Babylon. Let's go. We're out of here. We're going back to the promised land. That's the image. Here the word of the Lord comes to us in our own Babylon and says, come out of her. Now the problem with this, and beware, beware, 
The problem is that in the Exodus and the exile, so Moses and Jeremiah, both groups struggled with this. Moses said, let my people go. Come on, guys, let's go. They walk out, they get into the wilderness, and what's everybody start doing? Man, that was awesome back there. Awesome, you were slaves. Ah, we had pots of meat, leeks and onions. It was so good back there. What? No, come on, we're going to the promised land. I don't know. Korah, it didn't end well for Korah. Guys, let's go. We're going back. Earth opens up. Boom, down they go. Beware of this. The Lord says, get out of there. And we say, yeah, okay. And then we look back. Remember Lot? Lot's wife? Get out. She's going down. Know the times. Get out. Don't look back. Okay, she gets out. She can't help it. That one look back. What's the look back about? It's just wondering what could have been. What could have been? I wonder if it could still work. Pillar of salt. Don't become a pillar of salt. It's like that, like that insurance commercial. Oh, what commercial is that? All right, anyway, forget it. Um, you don't want that. But hey, listen, that's the danger. You look back, you wonder what could have been with the harlot. Maybe I could have had a relationship with her. I could have made it work. No, you can't. Be, and boy, this is a word for me. All right, so I'm preaching to myself here. Beware of nostalgia. I'm so nostalgic. Beware of nostalgia. It will kill you. Because you look back at what could have been for America. Oh, I do this all the time. I just, I watch so many things in our culture getting flushed down the toilet. And I just look back and I say, oh, what could have been? Be careful of that. I'm not saying the minute you have that thought, you're going to become a pillar of salt. But be careful with that of looking back. The exodus, they went out, but they kept looking back with nostalgia. Oh, what could have been? Or think about the exile. The exile is a different story. Now they're in Babylon, and, and the prophets say, hey, come on, let's go, guys. And many of them say, we don't want to go. We actually like it here. We're going to stay. They got so satisfied in Persia, they didn't want to leave. You know how this book ends? Come, Lord Jesus, come. I was listening to one preacher talk about Revelation. He said, you know, so many Christians actually get to that part, they would never say it. But they feel it like, not yet, Lord. John has such a vision that when he gets to the end, he says, come, Lord Jesus, come. But we have it so good, we go, well, not until I see my kids get married. Not until I get married. I sure would love to go see this part of the world first. Like, we have it so good. We're living in Babylon, and we're like, I, I like to go back to Israel. It sounds really awesome. There's so many more things I want to do while I'm here in Babylon. It's a danger. It's a, it's a, it's a messed up perspective that we would actually say, no, Lord, not, not yet. There's so many good things I want. As if the new creation will not be quite this good. <laughs> oh, man, do we need perspective on that. This good? Are you crazy? Come on, this room is full of suffering. It's not that good. I was just listening to a lecture on C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis got a letter from some American woman, and she was about to die. At least she thought she was going to die, and she was scared. And Lewis said to her, Hon, has this world been so good to you that you can't let go and go to glory? I was mowing. I'm always mowing. I was mowing when I heard that, and I just thought, crap. Crap. Because I feel that way. 
And I hear Lewis saying to me, has this world been that good to you? That you're not happy to let it go when finally that time comes? Let it go, Lewis said to her. Let it go. I think that's the kind of perspective that we got to guard ourselves from and to here. Come out of her. Now the question is how? (laughs) We can boil it down to brass tacks. What's that mean in America? How do we come out of her? How do we live in America? Because we're not told to go, literally, go move to Iceland and then don't worry about that or or move to JB and I are talking, wherever you are, JB or something. You know, saying, we just got that, that prayer from that guy in Uganda. You know what? Uganda it is. Let's say, you know, no, Uganda's, Uganda's not going to solve the problem, okay? There's always a harlot, okay? That's not the problem. So, so how do we live? That's not the solution. I mean, how do we live here and, and do it? I, I tell you this. The answer is not, now again, I'm preaching here, but the answer is not by gritting your teeth and saying, I can work with this secretary and not commit adultery. I can work next to this man and not cheat on my husband. That, that's not going to get it done. Pure willpower and gritting your teeth and just saying, I'm going to will it, is not going to do it. The answer is, biblically, you have got to have an alternate and greater joy. I really get this from John Piper. He's been such a blessing to me on this. You have got to have an alternate and a greater joy. And brothers and sisters, what we need to make our life about is cultivating that joy in Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus is not more precious and more beautiful than the harlot, then you're done. You're going to go for the harlot. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. How do you resist the secretary? You focus on your wife. You just find her so precious that it's just a woman. How do you stay faithful to your husband? You go love your husband. You, you focus on him. You dote on him so that the guy next to you, he's understanding, but he's not my husband. He's not my husband. He cannot satisfy me. Being with that man will lead to death. You have got to have an alternate and more precious, more beautiful joy so that when you look at the harlot, you see a hag. When the white witch offers you the Turkish delights, as they did in Narnia, they taste absolutely bitter to you because of the sweetness of Jesus Christ. If Jesus, if we don't cultivate that, you're done. You're not going to do this by willpower and just saying, okay, I won't like her. So practically, this does not mean physical separation. The model I gave you before is Jeremiah 29. The exiles in Babylon were told, build houses, plant gardens, Give your children away in marriage. Marry yourself, you know. Pray for the city. Seek its good. That's the model. Jeremiah 29, uh, 4 through 7, if you're interested in looking. That, that's, that's a word from Jeremiah to the people in exile. That's where we are. We're in exile. That's the word. Build houses. Live here. You've got to live in Babylon. He's not saying, get away from Babylon. No, you, that's where God... In fact, Babylon is actually God's gift to you. All of the crazy things in Babylon are actually God's provisions to you. That's what's so amazing. God uses Babylon to bless you. Just stay sober. Right? Just find him so precious that every time you enjoy a gift from Babylon, you go, God, you are so good. I don't, I, I don't view it as a gift from Babylon. I just, it, God, you are so good. As I enjoy that piece of artwork, as I go watch that ball game, as I watch this TV show, I listen to this song, I just go, God, you are awesome. Because in that, in that movie, I see the gifts you gave to those actors. In that ball game, I see the gifts you gave to those athletes. In that art, I see the wondrous gifts you gave to those painters. And that I get to enjoy it, God, you are so good. What a creator you are. All right, if you're doing that, so you're going to avoid the Harley. You're just not paying attention to her. You're just not paying attention to her. So we've got to have that kind of perspective. We stay here, but again, it requires discernment, discipline, and accountability. Know the times, don't get drunk, don't fornicate with the harlot, and don't be unequally yoked.
It's not just for Christians marrying non-Christians. It's for where we get yoked culturally. Be very careful. All right, now, moving on to verses 9 through 24. The little test of our perspective. Man, I got to hustle. The test of our perspective comes in verses 9 to 24. Now, how can we test where we're, how we're doing? John actually gives us a little test here to test our perspective. And here it is. How do you respond to the harlot's judgment? Two possibilities. There's two groups in the back part of chapter 18. One group is the group of kings and merchants that we're going to hear here. We're actually not going to read it. I don't have time. The kings and the merchants, when finally the harlot goes down, she's exposed, she goes up in flames. How do you respond when that happens? I'll tell you how the kings and the, and the merchants respond, and you can read it. Two groups are given to us. Kings who have gotten power and glory from her, so they've fornicated with the harlot, and they've gotten from her power and glory. They've invested in Rome. When Rome goes up in smoke, they weep and they wail and they lament and they go, what an awesome city that was. I can't believe it's going up in smoke. What am I going to do now? All my power is gone. That's how the kings respond. I'm paraphrasing. Go check it out. The second group, verses 14 to 19, are the merchants. These are the ones who have made their livelihood off of the harlot and off of the beast. And like the kings, they've invested all their eggs in her basket And when she goes up in smoke, they too put ashes upon their heads and they're weeping and they're mourning and they're going, woe is me. Now, by the way, neither of them repent. They're just sad to see their livelihood and their power go. It was so invested in the harlot, so invested in Rome, that when Rome goes down, they go down. They got nothing else. That's all they got. Where are you invested where are you invested? In 1929, when the stock market crashed, some people climbed up on top of buildings and jumped off. Why? Because their whole life was in that market. And when it goes down, you go down. Your life is ruined. You climb to the top of a building and you jump off. What would you climb to the top of a building and jump off for? What if you lost it today? Would you say, it's over for me? That's your God. I'll tell you right now, that's your investment. What would you climb to the top of a building for and say, it's just not worth living anymore? Your career, your spouse, your children, your bank account, your investments. What is it? Whatever that is, that would say, I'd jump over. I couldn't, I couldn't do it if it's that. You've got all your investments there. You've got an idol there. We've got idols there. These kings and merchants have put all their investments into that stock of Rome. And when it goes down, you climb to the top of a building and you jump off. It's over. I'm ruined. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And there is your God. Theirs was Rome. Let's be careful that ours is not America. St. Augustine wrote his great work, The City of God, in response to the fall of Rome because... As Rome was crumbling, many Christians were doing this too. They were going, oh my God, what are we going to do now? Our whole civilization, can you imagine? Can you imagine America just crumbled and was overrun by Al-Qaeda just came in here and took over America? That's what happened to Rome. Visigoths just were running Rome. And, and, and the Romans are going, what now? Our whole civilization is gone. And Christians were wringing their hands. Oh, what are we going to do now without Rome? Augustine said, that's it. I'm writing a thousand page book. <laughs> you need a lot of words. And he wrote the city of God to say, you're in the wrong story. 
He wrote the city of God and he retold the story of history. He said, the story of the world is the story of two cities. The city of man and the city of God. Brothers, sisters, you are citizens of the city of God. And the Visigoths can't trample that. And it is not dependent upon Rome. Rome will come and go, but the city of God will remain. That's where your citizenship is. He wrote that book to deal with this very thing. I mean, can you imagine America being overrun by Al-Qaeda? What are we going to do? We probably all be doing that. I kind of do it now as I'm watching things I'm used to crumbling away. But we have to be careful of that. Love America, but don't let it steal your heart. Don't let it steal your heart. Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but your heart is not Caesar's. Give, give, give them your patriotism, give them your taxes, give them your service, your citizenship, but your heart is not America's. So the first perspective is complete desolation. But the second perspective, and this gets us into 19, and we're coming down the home stretch tonight. The second response to the destruction of the harlot, so here's, again, I'm offering this to you as a test of where you're at. How would you respond to the destruction of the harlot? How would you respond if God judged America that way and it was over? Just hypothetical. I'm not, predi- I'm not prophesying anything for the tape. Let it be known. I'm, I'm not up here making any prophecies. I'm just saying, just imagine hypothetically. How would you respond? Like the kings and the merchants? Or like heaven? Now, I'm not going to tell you which one you should want. But would you respond like heaven? Chapter 19. And after this, after all the moaning and the groaning of the kings and the merchants, no, woe is me. After this, I heard what sounded like a great roar of a multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Can you even imagine yourself saying that if America went down? Hallelujah! Come on. Heaven does. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why are they praising that? Because Rome was the one who looked like they had all the power. Who can make war against that beast? But hallelujah, God has shown himself to be the one with power and glory. He's exposed the harlot. God is glorious. Praise be to him. That's the heavenly response. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever. I mean, they're celebrating destruction here. The 24 elders, guess what they're going to do? The 24 elders and the four living creatures, yep, down that fell down and worshiped the God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, fine, bright and clean linen were given to her to wear. And the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The heavenly response is celebration and praise, cascading praise, praise upon praise. What group do you want to be in? You want to be in that group. Now, again, this doesn't mean, I'm, I'm not Jeremiah Wright up here, right? Like, goddamn America, right? I'm not, I'm not doing that. I pray God will bless America. I pray that God will bless America so much that she will fall on her knees and repent. I want God to bless this country. So I'm not, uh, don't hear me. I'm not like coming out with some fiery thing about how much I hate America and we should all hate him. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just offering warnings. I'm just, I'm just encouraging us to take this stuff seriously, right? But should she get to that point, the point that Rome got, and again, I'm not saying we're there, 
But when Rome goes down, you sing hallelujah. You don't wring your hands. That's what Augustine's saying. No, the city of God will march on and all rival powers who try to take God's glory must go down and God must be glorified. Heavenly cascading praise is what we want to be part of. Why are they praising? Because God's judgments are true. Judgments are just and true. And because in bringing them down, he has avenged his saints. I think part of the reason why we wouldn't celebrate because if America went down, is we're not quite like Rome, right? If, if you were living in Rome where they're slaughtering your fellow Christians, I think you'd be a little more celebratory. See, we haven't gotten there yet. And, but if you were, you'd be, you'd be celebrating that. And I, 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 would, I, I was going to read you a quote about vengeance, but I'm gonna, I'll hold on that. Give it to you another time. They're, they're praising him for avenging the saints. I just think the reason I was going to read it is because I think we get queasy about God avenging anything. Vengeance just sounds so bad. But I would argue... It's absolutely necessary. A belief in the vengeance of God is absolutely necessary for a suffering church. And the author I was going to quote to you is Miroslav Volf from Croatia. He's a professor at Yale. Wrote a couple awesome books, but one I love is called uh, Exclusion and Embrace, where he wrestles with how do we exclude and when do we embrace that challenge? When do I have to exclude and when do I have to embrace? And very challenging, very challenging. And he, he, he... he writes about this idea of vengeance being very unsettling to Western Christians. How the heck am I going to And he says this. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in... De- so how, how, can you be, how can you be faithful in a state of suffering when the beast is coming down hard on you and endure it and love your enemies and pray for them? And, and you know, how, how can you do that? And he says, only with a belief in God's vengeance. And you go, oh, no, 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 that's awful. You shouldn't, you shouldn't believe God's vengeance. You just pray, every, God's just going to make everything go away and be nice, nice. Oh, no, no not according to Wolf. He, he grew up in, in a blood-soaked Croatia. But my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where the paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate because God is perfect non-judging love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human non-violence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He says, the only way I can tell people in a blood-soaked land, you be faithful and you don't retaliate and you love your neighbor and you pray for them, is if you believe that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he will repay. Either he will pay upon them or he will have repaid upon Jesus Christ. But vengeance will be worked out. Jesus, I'll take the vengeance. But for those who are not in Christ, it will be repaid, and not one ounce of injustice will go unpunished. So he comes to avenge his saints. They also praise him, and this is what I want to focus on here for just a second. I'm asking the question here, why are they praising him? They're praising him because his judgments are just and true. They're praising him because, yes, he's finally answered the prayer to the martyrs and avenged his saints. But then thirdly, they're praising him, they're praising him, for the reserved blessing. <clears throat> They're praising him because there's a wedding banquet in front of them. 
God is a God of bounty. He is a God of bounty. He's a God who blesses. Don't forget, this book has seven blessings. Complete blessing. God is a God who wants to bless and bless and bless again, and he blesses you with bounty. The Garden of Eden, as Doug Wilson said, was a garden of yes with a tree of no. Not a tree of a garden of no with a tree of yes. No, 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 not our God. Our God gives a garden of yes. Yes, that tree. Yep, that tree. Yep, eat that tree. Yep, those trees. No, that tree. But yes, that tree. And yes, that tree. A garden of yes with one tree of no. Our God is a God who blesses and he blesses bountifully. And this is important because when God calls us to abstinence with the harlot, he is not calling us to abstinence because he doesn't want you to have pleasure. He's not saying say no because I'm, I'm a God who's stingy and I don't want you to have pleasure. I want you to suffer. That's what we see when we get to the end. Nope, that's not what it is. You know why God says no? Because he has something better for you. It's like a mom who, when the child comes up before dinner and says, Mom, can I have this Snickers bar? Says no. Why? Because mom doesn't want the kid to have any fun. The mom doesn't want the child to delight in any food. No, because the mom has a feast prepared for the child. And if you eat this, you spoil the feast. You spoil the supper. Our God is not a God who demands abstinence for abstinence sake. There's nothing good about abstinence in and of itself. God says, don't commit adultery with the harlot because you lose everything. I have something so much better for you. I have a wedding banquet for you to enjoy. The reason they're praising him is because of the great blessing that's been held in reserve that now is being given to them. And it's so much better than anything America will give you, than anything any nation will give you. Don't fill your stomach on garbage when he has a great banquet being held for you. Our God is a God of bounty, and we see that here. And the bounty is that of a wedding feast. The coming together of the whole Bible here, all of God's covenants with his people, covenant, wedding, marriage, The covenant with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David and the new covenant in Jesus, all of that have been anticipations of this great wedding banquet that we're brought to here. And it's a great banquet indeed. Now let me close. Let me just close with the last part of chapter 19, the Battle of Armageddon. And then we're done for tonight. Tomorrow we do, or next week we do 20, 21, and 22. In the end of chapter 19, we get to the battle of Armageddon, the judgment of the beast. So you can see where we are. The destruction of Babylon and the beast. The battle of Armageddon, this great thing that everybody knows in the book of Revelation. And we get this here in, uh, in verse 11. It starts here. The battle of Armageddon. The, sides, the whole book of Revelation, as we talked about in the beginning, has brought us to this. Sides have been chosen. We all have to ask, whose side are we on? The side of the beast or the side of the lamb? The beast we've already seen reintroduced. Let's reintroduce the lamb because now he appears again in verse 11. And I'm just going to rip through the description of the lamb that you can read if you want in the text. But just listen. Because remember that great vision we got of Jesus in chapter 1 that made John fall dead before him? Well, we saw the lamb in chapter 5. We saw him standing with his saints in chapter 14. But now here, he reappears and he's awesome. Let me just rip through 
this lamb who reappears, and then we'll look at the battle, and we're done. The reappearance of the lamb, verses 11 through 16. First, he comes on a white horse. Remember how he came the first time? On a donkey. And he went to a cross. This time he comes on a war steed. The same Jesus that came on a donkey, now he comes on a war horse. He comes to make war, not on a donkey. Secondly, he judges, he comes to judge and to make war. He comes to judge like the Old Testament judges. They were not guys like in black rows with gavels who said, guilty. They went and killed Midianites. They delivered God's people by slaying their enemies. That's the kind of judge he is. He comes on a white horse. He comes to judge and to make war. Thirdly, his eyes are a fire. We've seen that before. He's a judge and his judgment is perfect. Fourthly, he comes wearing many crowns. You know that song, Crown Him with Many Crowns? This is that. He's crowned with many crowns. The beast had seven, ten upon his horns, but when the lamb shows up, he's got an innumerable number of crowns. He's got the crowns of every nation on his head. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Next, he's got a robe soaked in blood. This is graphic. Now, the battle hasn't happened yet, but his robe's already soaked in blood. The idea is this is the blood of his enemies. He is the word of God, we're told. The revelation of the Father. Next, he comes with an army with him. So this, this awesome image of the lamb who comes riding in on a horse with all these crowns on his head and behind him on other horses is an army. Completely unnecessary group of people. The one thing the lamb does not need is an army. As we're going to see. What's an army doing there then? It's complete privilege. These are my people. They're with me. When he comes in to finish this thing, he lets us come with him. It's an awesome image. We get to ride it. We do nothing in this. You'll see. The army's just there. But they get to come. They get to be there on the day of victory and glory. Next, he carries a sword. Well, a sword comes out of his mouth. A two-edged sword with which, we're told, he will strike down the nations and rule them with an iron scepter. Psalm 2. He brings a sword and he will bring down the nations who rage. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? God in heaven laughs. You know why God laughs? Because of Revelation 19. Because he knows how the story ends. The nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, and God is just chuckling. He's just laughing up there. I love that. Rarely do you hear about God laughing, but in Psalm 2 you do. And he's laughing at our enemies, mocking them, because he knows how the story ends. The story ends with a lamb who comes with a sword in his mouth to slay the wicked. Next, we're told he treads the winepress. That's an image we already saw, very gory image that we saw, and then finally we're told he has a name on his robe and on his thigh. Remember the beast had blasphemous names upon him. The lamb also has a name. And his name, we're told, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the, the lamb has been reintroduced. Verse 17, we're, getting, we're gearing up to the battle now. Be with, get with me here. So this, the lamb comes... He's got his army behind him. We know the beast has already got his army. He's summoned them with all the kings of the nations, deceiving them with these frog-like spirits. So here comes his army, and we're just we're zooming out now. We're seeing these armies just coming together. We're feeling it. Now, in verse 17, 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried with a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, the angel says to the bird. (laughs) Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the generals and the mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Before the battle even begins, the angel summons the birds. Guys, get ready. There's going to be a feast for you. There's going to be so many dead bodies. This may be gory, but it's an image of amazing desolation of victory the Lord's going to bring against him. So the birds are summoned for what is like an anti-Lord's Supper. We're all going to eat flesh, right? There's flesh is going to be eaten. It's either going to be there, your flesh is going to be eaten, or you will eat the flesh of Jesus Christ, but flesh will be eaten. The armies mount, and this is great. I just love it. <laughs> I think as I've read through this, this is one of my favorite parts of, uh, of Revelation. The armies mount. We're zooming out. We're seeing it. The angel summons the birds. Get ready. This is going to be something. Then verse 19, the armies mount. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Here we go. And then verse 20, and the beast was captured. That's it. You know the Battle of Armageddon? <laughs> that everybody's like, ooh, the Battle of Armageddon's going to be, you know, it's going to be, that, that's it, right? That's the whole battle. Why? Look, look. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed miraculous signs. And with these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast. The two of them were thrown into the lake of fire of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword. Boom, done. That's it. It's over. No Lord of the Rings battle here. Right, where he's like, the amazing armies, and they're in the castle, and there's a man, and the army, and oh no, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing, no, we're winning, you know, and, and whoa, man, I don't know how they're going to win that battle. No, not this one. The battle of Armageddon is here they come. All right, come here, beast. You're just, whoosh, into the lake of fire, it's over. You know why? Because there's no rivalry here. <laughs> these, you know, again, sometimes we view this as if God and Satan, and they're just fighting. No, there's no fight. He's the uncontested champion. There's no drama here. They come together for battle, and the Lord just seizes the beast. That's why our army is not necessary. He just seizes the beast, throws him into the lake of fire. Seizes the, the false prophet, throws him in the lake of fire. It's over. The whole battle right there. They're not rivals. There's no drama here. This battle was never in question. The Lord was victor- victorious right from the get-go. The beast and his followers are seized and thrown into the lake of fire. And again, I don't want to be glib about that because it's really serious. But it's an awesome picture and it's right there for you. Laid out before us that judgment that we should be wary of. Okay, that's chapter 19. Did it? Not actually. Well, three minutes. Wow. That's not bad. Now, next week we come to the end. We come to the end and we've got one more judgment scene because we've been watching these judgments play out. We've seen the harlot judged. Now we've seen the beast and the false prophet judged. Only one left to judge, and that's the dragon. Next week, the, jag- the dragon will be judged, and then we get to spend as much time as possible of the two hours looking at the new creation. And we want to meditate upon that. The great thing about this book, and therefore the great thing about this class, is that it ends on an awesome note. The view and picture of new creation. So come ready and prepared to wrap this thing up next week and to celebrate what we have to look forward to and let that be the lens that shapes us so that we don't become those who say, come, Lord, but just not yet. We want to be those who, when we get such a vision, go, oh, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
All right, let's pray and prepare ourselves for this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this vision. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your greatness. And yet, Lord, we confess together how prone we are, our hearts, to wander. Father, how prone we are to gaze upon the harlots. How prone we are to fear the beast. And Father, we pray that through this vision, and by the power of your Spirit, for we acknowledge we can't do it of ourselves, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. So change our perspective. That, Father, we have confidence that's inexplicable. We have judgment and discernment that is inexplicable. Because, Father, we have found in Jesus Christ something so precious that there's nothing worth compromising against him. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this evening as we go this week. Strengthen us to serve you faithfully in the midst of the trials that are in our own lives, for there are many. We pray that you would bless us as we go. Until next week, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors. <laughs>